God's prevailing work, His church through the ages. Kind of a long title for the series, but that's what uh, we're going to be working on for the next uh, many weeks. And so I have a handout to, to give you a little bit later, but I want you to, um, uh, to just, we'll just do some introductory work tonight. Uh, there you're wondering, why don't, why doesn't the preacher have his coat on? It's uh, not that uh, hot in here. Well, uh, we, were, we got uh, some exciting things going on, and I just worked right up till church time, and I didn't even have a tie on. I had to borrow a tie, so uh, uh, it was a blessing. Blessing to be able to, to spend some time with Deanna and, and Cody and Jake uh, uh, for a couple hours before the service, and we visited, and, and uh, they had some questions concerning the assurance of their salvation and that kind of thing, and so we just nailed it down, and they, they uh, confessed Christ, and uh, are going to be baptized on, uh, uh, on Sunday, and so we're all excited about that. Uh, uh, we're rejoicing in the Lord. They, they, they already, you know, had a heart for the Lord and desire to uh, to uh, just uh, be pleasing to Him in every way. So we just nailed that thing down and got it taken care of. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. Uh, and uh, then on uh, Sunday we'll see, be seeing Him in Believer's Baptism. Pray for uh, Jason, uh, the dad and the husband. The Lord's uh, at work in his life. Uh, and so we just pray that God will continue to uh, help us be a blessing to him uh, in some of the things that he's facing. And so uh, just pray for Jason as God uh, works in his situation as well. Uh, so take your Bible, first of all, I'll start with Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to get to verse 22 and verse 23, and we're just going to be around several passages of Scripture over the course of this introductory message uh, concerning the, uh, the hand of the Lord, the work of the Lord uh, in His churches down from the time the, uh, the, that He established the church till the present time. And we're going to take a look at that. I think it'll, it'll help you uh, to maybe answer some of the questions about, you know, how do we know who's right and who isn't? There's Heinz 57 varieties of churches out there, and there's all kinds of people to believe all kinds of things. And, you know, who, how do we know if we're in the right place? And so uh, there's, some, um, there's some great uh, reasons to go and take some time to take a look at what the testimony of history is and how it corresponds with the testimony of the Scripture as we go down through here. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23, I want to tell you, as we look at this, of course, the, the, the primacy of God's church, the importance of God's church, what we're going to be uh, focusing a bit on as we go through. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23, and hath put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then chapter 3 and verse 21, the church which is his body. Chapter 3 and verse 21, unto him, unto Christ, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Wow, that's a powerful lot of truth in that little one verse of Scripture uh, the importance of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that He's the head, that the church is His body. And we're going to be talking uh, about the, uh, the, um, uh, the position, the place of the church in, 
in our lives and in the lives of the, uh, in the, in the history of the world as we go down through here. I want you to go to one more passage of Scripture as we think of um, establishing a foundation for our uh, study from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, 15. You got uh, the book of Hebrews back up a little bit. You're going to find uh, Titus and Timothy. So... 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. But if I tarry long, Paul's writing to Pastor Timothy, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So, God's Holy Spirit directed uh, Paul to write that the house of God is the church of the living God. And then he said, the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So it's essential that we understand the importance of uh, our connection to uh, this assembly of believers, a local church representing the body of Christ uh, on the earth. And so in the Bible, you see Jesus uh, representing the church as a building and as a body and as a bride. And all those things are, are representations of the local church. And so in every one of those cases, you have, a, um, you have not something that's ethereal and undefinable and unknown and mystical. Uh, you have something that is, you know, definable. A, a building, you can always define a building. It's got a shape. It's got a size. It's got a, it's got a color. It's got a place. You can always define a bride. She has, she's a person, and she has a dress, and uh, and she is uh, someone's uh, wife. The bride is, is always someone. You know, there isn't a universal bride somewhere out there in space that we're all part of. You know, there isn't a universal building out there floating around that uh, we're all just part of building blocks of this building. Uh, and by the same token, there isn't a universal body that's ethereal and mystical and undefined, the body that uh, the Lord defines as his, as his is the church, the local church. So every local assembly, biblically constituted local assembly, uh, is, a, is a representation of the body of Jesus Christ. And we'll uh, be looking at some of those specific bodies of Christ, those specific representations, if you will, of the body of Christ. By the way, the most uh, central, the most, the original body of Christ is the physical body of Christ. And so um, when, you, when you concern yourself with questions of the body of Christ, you can look at the context and discover that uh, in the cases where he's referring to uh, his physical body, it's obvious within the context and it is the, it is the original because the body of Christ is the sacrifice that was offered for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And so uh, this representation here is a representation of that body of Christ, having many members and so on, you know, and the specifics of it. But, uh, but as, we, as we look at the establishment of the church during the public ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that from the get-go, from the very beginning of things, that the devil has been unceasing in his attacks on the church. He's been unceasing in that. Um, you know, uh, the, the devil's crowd and the, the devil's representatives have certainly been, uh, have attacked the church in every sense of the word. 
in the physical sense. Uh, certainly that has happened in the past. It's happening in the present in many parts of the world in an actual physical uh, uh, attacks uh, on the Christians and on, the, uh, on churches. And, um, you know, from numerous sources, these attacks have come. And then from all the way to the other side of the spectrum with very subtle uh, attacks on, uh, on uh, assemblies of believers through doctrinal errors, doctrinal errors creeping in and, and so forth, and uh, turning away churches from the truth to error. Uh, and certainly we have ample evidence of, uh, of that occurring as we look at uh, the history of churches from the time of Christ to the present. So all of those things are so, and, you know, anything that uh, is going to be used by God to accomplish His greater purposes, it's evident that the promise of Christ, that there would be attacks on that, was that He said, they, they hated me and they're going to hate you as well. And so uh, the devil and his crowd and the, all the devil's henchmen and representatives are not going to love you as a church, as an assembly of believers, or as an individual Christian. Uh, any more than the devil does. So just get used to it, you know. Uh, but we have the promise from Christ. We have the promise from God that even the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. We have the promise from God that the church would be carrying on until Jesus comes again. So uh, that the entity called the, the church, the local church, as represented in this body and others like us, the entity of the local church will be going on until Jesus returns. And um, so from its establishment, Jesus set the church apart. There's three entities that he refers to several times in the scripture as distinct entities. He says the Jews is one of those entities, the Gentiles are another, and the third, he says, he calls the church of God. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Let's read it. Uh, take your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. And um, you can mark it here if you wish, uh, that these three entities are distinct, uh, distinct, distinctive from one another. They're separated, and Paul identifies them as three separate entities. So um, while you're going there, also, um, if you're finding Ephesians chapter 2, hold your marker there as well. But 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. He says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Circle neither, nor, and nor. And you see those separating words there, separating the distinctive, distinctive uh, making distinctive the Jews, the Gentiles, and then this third entity, the church of God. Exciting thing about this is that out of Jews and out of Gentiles, he's pulling a people and he's gathering them together as an assembly of believers and he's calling that the church. And so you and I, and we're mostly, gen anybody here of Jewish heritage, I don't know that anybody is of Jewish heritage. We have Holly, her maiden name was Finkelstein. She's of Jewish heritage, but... She's not here tonight. Uh, all the rest of you are Gentiles. The Bible, the Jews called you Gentile dogs. They didn't like you very well. <clears throat> and, uh, and so Gentile dogs, you know. And the Jews in their culture came to the place where they looked upon 
all Gentiles as inferior peoples. They did not look at them, look upon them at all as God intended for the Jews to be a witness to the Gentile world and for the Jews to be an example of the love of Christ for the lost. They were supposed to be that light and that testimony. I mean, after all, it was the Hebrew people that God chose to bring the word to the world. It was the Hebrew people that God chose through which to bring the Messiah to the world. It wasn't The Messiah wasn't intended just for the Jews, but for the world, you know. And so that was the, that was the plan of God in, in, uh, in the order of things. And if the Jews had, uh, had done, had responded to him as he uh, commanded them, but they did not. They added all kinds of their own uh, traditions and so forth to the point where when we got to the time of Christ, the, uh, you know, the, the, the genuine uh, Hebrew heritage is hardly recognizable. And so you have then those, those uh, attitudes that the Jews developed about Gentiles, and you can see it in some sense. They'd been trodden under Gentile domination uh, by culture after culture, from the Greeks to the Romans now, and uh, from the Babylonians to the Greeks to the Romans. And um, so they looked upon the Gentiles entirely different than uh, uh, than they than they saw themselves, <clears throat> but then, then out of these two entities comes this uh, new entity that was established by the Lord Jesus Christ, called the Church, the Church of God. Now I want you to take your Bible to Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven through verse twenty-two, and you're going to understand this in the context of these three entities. You're going to understand this passage better. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven to verse twenty-two, and. Uh, now, there's, there's three entities here. There's the Gentile, the Jew, and there, then there's the church of God out of those two. So take a look at it in that light as we read it here, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. So he's writing to the Ephesian church, mostly composed of Gentiles. Might have been some Jewish converts in there, probably was, but... Uh, mostly composed of Gentiles. They were in Ephesus, after all, uh, in, in uh, Greece. And so, um, so he's, uh, he's writing them, and he says, uh, Remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. Called, they called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. The Jews were the circumcision, okay? Uh, you were called that by the, by the circumcision, uh, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That wall of partition between Gentile and between Jew was broken down by Jesus Christ, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hate, the enmity between them, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make of himself of twain, one new man, so making peace, 
So there's this enmity that exists and there's the enmity that is incurred by the law and the commandments that, by the way, though the Jews condemned the Gentiles for not keeping the commandments, neither could they keep them either. So there is this enmity that is created by the law <coughs> that, uh, that neither Jew nor Gentile could uh, attain to. So he said he's reconciled both Jew and Gentile unto God by one body on, uh, by the cross, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby in one body. The Lord Jesus Christ's body crucified on the cross has slain the enmity that was existing in the wall of partition that was between. And he said, He came and preached unto you, Gentiles, He came and preached unto you, which were afar off. The Jews, the Jews were the ones that you would say were nigh because they were in the promised land. They were under the word. They had the promises of God on them. They were nigh in that sense. And so He said, Came and preached uh, peace unto you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. So there's a new entity uh, that is created that uh, comes out of Jew and Gentile. Now therefore we're no more strangers and foreigners. We're not on two sides of this wall anymore. We're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The church of the living God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the preaching of the word, the prophets and, their, and the word that God gave through them. And Jesus Christ himself is that chief cornerstone. And he says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So he gets down to the specific Ephesian church there, and he said, You also are builded together as an habitation of God through the Spirit. Talking about the Ephesian church, the brethren there, congregation of people just like we are tonight. He's saying to them, you're the habitation of God. You're the house of God. You're the household of God. And you're this new entity that came out of Gentiles and out of Jews who had a wall between them, who had a partition between them, the one that were nigh, the one that were far off, brought them all together by the means of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his body slain for both Jew and Gentile alike. And so whosoever will, uh, let him come unto me. He said, so here's this middle wall partition gone and the... Uh, this new entity uh, that is there, the, the church, the local assembly of believers as represented here tonight. Uh, so the bulk of the New Testament books that you read, the, the most, most of the New Testament books were written to churches or they were written to pastors of churches in the case of Timothy and Titus. Uh, and they were written to churches and pastors of churches. And then even the book of Revelation concerns itself as it begins in the first four chapters with churches. Until the, until the rapture occurs in chapter 4 and verse 1, they were caught up together uh, with the Lord, and, and you don't read then anymore at all of the church in the tribulation time. You don't see one mention of the church in that uh, tribulation time after uh, Revelation 4 verse 1. But up to that time, you have the seven churches of, uh, uh, of um, Asia Minor there that are talked about there, and the, the pros and cons of those seven churches, you see that all represented there. And all through the New Testament, you have the focus on the, uh, the preeminence of Christ 
and his churches. So there you, you begin. You begin the story at that, at that place. It is, the, it is the churches that Jesus Christ said. He made this statement. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He made that distinction at, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If Christ loved the church, shouldn't you and me love the church? And, I, and shouldn't you and me understand the, the value of an assembly of believers gathered together in the house of God to worship our Savior, to learn of our Savior, to, uh, to give praise unto Him and to magnify and honor Him, than to teach uh, doctrinal truth and to learn and to fellowship one with another, to uh, grow in grace. All those things are essential for us to be what God wants us to be as a, as a church. And so certainly Jesus Christ made it clear to us that what He loved we ought to love. He loved the Father. We ought to love the Father. He loved uh, God's people, and we ought to love God's people. He loved God's house. We ought to love God's house. He loved the Word, you know. He loved the Word of God, and so we ought to love the Word of God. Uh, the things We ought to learn the things that Jesus loved and love those, and learn the thing that Jesus didn't love and not love those. So, so um, it's, a good way to, it's a good way to learn how to live as a Christian. The work of the apostles was the establishment of churches. And so the book of Acts is all about the apostles going out into the world and establishing assemblies of believers. I mean, they didn't just go out and freelance it and just, you know, uh, try to win people to Christ and say, okay, you're saved, you're going to heaven and have a good day and uh, try to get some others, you know, along with you. He, they always went to work and established a, a body of believers in the town they were in and got it situated, and they went back through and, and ordained elders in those churches and got the leadership going, and, and then they chose deacons and so forth, and they got involved in, in the ministry. They encouraged them to go uh, out of their church and plant other churches. The, the uh, church at Antioch was one of the most uh, ideal as far as getting it and taking the, taking the incentive and giving the gospel out to the world, sending out missionaries, and thank God for that. What a blessing it was for us to see five of our own young people uh, graduating from different uh, 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 courses at, uh, at uh, Heartland Baptist Bible College last week. Uh, four of our uh, folks were fourth-year graduates, one uh, uh, a Bible degree graduate. And so uh, thank God for that, uh, that fact because we have some of those now going out in ministry. Brother Aaron Myers is going to be planning a church in Utah in the next year or two and and uh, we have a, a missionary to Poland now, and Kyle Rodecker and his wife to be, uh, Hannah, uh, who's now Montoro, but she's going to be a she's going to be a Rodecker uh, one of these days. And so uh, uh, we got Kyle going to Poland. He's going to start there, and as I mentioned in my uh, bulletin note, he's going to start there in Brooklyn. There's a great, a huge population of Polish people there, and uh, he's going to learn to eat Polish dogs and uh, talk the Polish language, you know, and so. He's going to have a good time there in Brooklyn while he's working a job and preparing himself. The plan is to spend about five years there uh, getting into the, uh, the Polish culture and establishing a, a ministry uh, among the Polish that, uh, that gets planted and plugged into the uh, assembly of believers there in the Brooklyn area with some of the new churches. And so he's excited about that. And, and uh, that's what is happening here at Antioch. Uh, it, it is... It is people getting saved, getting grounded, getting taught, and then going out with the gospel to the world. And so that's the plan. That's the uh, apostles' work as they, as they get started there. Um, I listen sometimes to Dennis Prager on the radio when I'm uh, driving. He's a conservative commentator. He's a Jewish man. 
but he has a great regard for the Bible. He believes that the only hope for America is for people to get back to the Bible. And he, here's a Jew preaching that. Why aren't more Christians preaching that, you know? Here's a Jew preaching that the only hope for America is for America to get back to the Bible. And uh, has a great, he has great respect for the contribution that Christians made to the beginning of our nation, to the foundation of our nation. So um, he was speaking recently on the silliness of Mr. Biden's uh, claim that he'll be a uniter in politics. And he said, he, he pointed out that, uh, you know, that's a silliest, a very silly statement to make that uh, let's, let's all unite. There, there's not any uniting. How can two walk together except to be agreed? In fact, he was quoting the scripture on that. And he said, I learned a lot about this idea, uh, the silliness of this idea of uniting when I hosted a program, a religious program. And he said, I'd have, I'd have rabbis on and I'd have Protestant preachers on and I'd have, uh, I'd have Catholic priests on. He didn't have any Baptist preachers. I don't know why, but uh, he had Protestants and Catholics, and he and he mentioned uh, uh, he mentioned the um, the rabbi too. And he said they would all talk about how they, you know, how religion needed religions needed to unite. And he said he asked him the question. He said to the priest, he said, "Well, then are you willing to, you know, talk about unite? Unite with the Protestants? Are you willing to uh, to renounce the leadership of the Pope?" Because the Protestants aren't going to accept that. Oh, no, no, no. He said, we, we need to unite, but we, what they're saying is we need to unite, but we need them to agree with us. You know? And that's what the left is saying. We need to unite, but we need all the people that are conservative in their pol political philosophy to just give that up and become part of us. You know? And the conservatives are saying the same thing. Yeah, we, the ones that are dumb enough to think we can unite, the ones that are dumb enough to think we can unite are saying, yeah, we, we need to unite, but you guys need to be a little more like us. Let's reach across the aisle. There's, there's no reaching across the aisle, you know. How can two walk together except they be agreed? If this one, you know, thinks abortion is fine and this one hates the idea of abortion, how are they going to unite? They're not. They're not going to unite on that, you know. And uh, how are we going to unite when doctrinal differences exist between this group and that group? And that one over there believes that, you know, the... The Pope is the vicar of Christ and he's the voice of authority in the world and he is the head of all the churches and, and that. And over here, they believe none of that. They're not going to unite. <laughs> the only way they'll unite is if they drop all of their doctrinal distinctives, which a lot of them are willing to do because they really don't have much in the way of doctrinal distinctives anyway. They just believe a, a, a vague notion about God and, you know, and that's about as far as they get doctrinally. So I can see why he's never had any Baptists on his program because none of them uh, that have any sense anyway, none of them talk about let's just all get together, unite the world, uh, you know, and uh, teach the world to sing, <laughs> not all that business. Uh, so uh, this idea of, of uh, unity and harmony can't exist unless there is agreement, you know, unless there's agreement. So biblical churches have never been interested in religious unity across religious spectrum. Biblical churches have been much more interested in the proclamation and the stand for truth. That's far more important than unity. Truth is way more important than unity, you know. And we could have unity if we're willing to just set aside most of the things that make, uh, that distinguish us as, as biblical Baptist people. We could have unity if we're willing to set all that stuff aside and just say, let's just unite on a general kind of a broad-based belief in Christ, you know. We've got a lot of people that believe in Christ, and so let's just unite on that, you know. That's, uh, that's kind of silly. 
it's just not going to get anything, not going to get it done, not going to happen when Jesus told us that our responsibility is to teach uh, those that we win to Christ, we're going to baptize them, and we're going to teach them all the things that Jesus commanded them. So if we're going to do that, you know, we're not going to get too many excited about, uh, you know, throwing in there and just uh, giving up all their positions and so on like that. So this is, this is the, 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 the thing that we're, that we're united on, the, the truth of the Word of God. There's, there's unity when we, when we all submit ourselves, subject ourselves to the truth of God's Word. And then there is, there is harmony, there is unity in that. But certainly you don't see a world that, uh, out there that's w- willing to, uh, to c- confess that position. So since God has declared that His truth would endure to the end of the world, and He's also declared that the church is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth, uh, then we're, we should be able to deduce that we can see traces of a church that holds those doctrinal positions all the way through from the time Christ established the church until the present. I mean, the, you know, the, the stream may run pretty narrow sometimes through the course of church history, but it's got to be there uh, all, all the time because Jesus said that His church would continue to exist from the time He established it to the time He came again. So, on this earth, somewhere in every era, in every age, there's been bodies of believers that have uh, held to the distinctives that Jesus gave them to start with, you know, and so we've got that. We've got that. I... Um, I want to uh, take the, the time to go through in the next many weeks to go through and, and uh, take a careful look at a biblical perspective on God's uh, prevailing work in the churches from the apostles' days to the present. So we're just uh, not going to have a lot of time left, but let me ask uh, a couple of you guys to help me. i got a few of these to pass out. It looks like I have enough for almost everybody. If couples would take one. Uh, Ryan, could you uh, get a helper there? Brother Sid will give you a hand there. Well, let me keep one of those um, so I know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, I thought I had, oh, I have one. I have one here written. If you need this one, give it, give it back. I got one. I knew I, I, knew I had it. Uh, I gave you this last one here, Ryan, too, so you can, because it's going to go just about to the end there. But here you got um, what we're going to be going, what we're going to be looking at. This is just a real broad uh, prospectus of the next uh, many weeks in, on our Wednesday studies. Um, the material, the handout that I give you there is put together by uh, Pastor Robert Sargent, Brother Sargent's a friend of mine. He's a pastor, many years, pastor up at Bible Baptist Church in Oak Harbor, Washington, a good man. His uh, origins are, he's an Aussie, he's an Australian man, but he's a lover of the truth, a lover of the word, um, a great student of the scriptures, and uh, has great love for history, a very uh, well-read man. And he has, uh, he, I'm using some of his uh, references along with a number of other things uh, as I go through and make uh, prepare the messages. But here's, the, here's what we're going to be looking at. You've got three categories, the primitive church, the early church that is, early church history, medieval church history, and modern church history. We're going to go from A.D. 26 to, uh, to the present uh, there, if you will. The primitive church is the apostolic church that uh, came into existence during Christ's ministry. Uh, he, he established a church and uh, had it functioning before he left the earth. And so it, it was empowered on the day of Pentecost, but it already existed. See, it, it already existed. They, they had something that they were added to that was already there. And so uh, it existed in the time of Christ, 
but was empowered on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit empowering uh, indwelling the believers. And so we have the apostolic church from uh, the time of Christ's public ministry to the, uh, to the death of the Apostle John, which occurred uh, about A.D. 98. He was the last remaining apostle. He died. Uh, uh, he was only one of the apostles that wasn't martyred in some form. And so <clears throat> he... Uh, as, he, as he closed the book of the Revelation and he wrote those words that uh, God told him to, wrote, to write, that no man's to take away from this word and no man's to add to this word. And when he closed the book, it was finished. Uh, the, the canon of Scripture was completed. That completed also the apostolic era, completed also the apostolic signs. That's why we don't uh, have or need apostolic signs anymore, the speaking in tongues, the healings, the special miracles, the various things that occurred in the ministry of Jesus and of the apostles. Um, none of that was necessary once the scriptures were completed and the canon of scripture was accepted, which is very early on. By AD 150, you have a relatively complete understanding of the canon of scripture among the churches. And so uh, the apostolic church and then the post-apostolic era was from John's death into the Edict of Milan. Now, the Edict of Milan is the one that finally, Constantine, the emperor of Rome at that time, had finally changed the course of things. There had been five major edicts pre previous to that that were all edicts that persecuted the Christians. And man, you could, uh, when we get into that part, you're going, to, you're going to see some details of the things that are unbelievable of what Christians had to go through uh, under these various pagan Roman emperors and their edicts against any form of Christianity. Going to, you and I are going to better appreciate what we've been given, I hope, as we see what those that have gone before us had to give for us to have what we have today. And so we'll be talking about that. But, but the Edict of Milan was that edict which was issued by Emperor Constantine after he'd seen what he thought was a vision in the heavens of the cross and by this time conquer, and he uh, won a victory there. Uh, and and uh, we'll talk about the battle and so forth and some of the details there. <laughs> he... Because he believed that Christianity now must be it because he thought he saw this sign of the cross up there and you know, by this sign conquer. And so Christianity is no longer persecuted. It's, in fact, it's going to be the state religion. We're going to make it the state religion. And so he made that, the edict declared that Christianity be, uh, have freedom and to be made the state religion. So from persecution to, uh, you know, to the complete opposite of that, to the stamp of approval by the state, you know, and uh, Constantine had his uh, armies marched into the rivers in, in what he called baptism. Uh, do you think that was scriptural baptism? <laughs> I don't think so. And so uh, we talk about some of that as we as we look at that. But uh, that's the what the Edict of Milan was uh, dealing with. And then we're gonna that's gonna bring us up through uh, the about the year six hundred. And you have the media the medieval church history, which is the growth of the. Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, the, the, the pope being head of the church, the Rome, the, the, uh, uh, the priests of Rome, the power of the papacy being the middle part of that age from 1049 to 1294. And these popes uh, that are mentioned there being the predominant figures in the beginning and the end of that. And then the decline of the papacy, which occurred, by the way, this power of the papacy was a 250-year period of incredible power on the uh, part of the Roman Catholic hierarchy, uh, they had power over all the kings of Europe. I mean, the, the, nothing happened politically without the Pope's approval in, the, in this era. Great, enormous power. 
in the, in the world. And, and still in some places you'd be amazed at the power of the Roman church in Philippines, for example, in Mexico, for example, Central America. You'd be amazed at the power, that is, political power, that is still exerted in the Roman Catholic Church in those, uh, some of those places yet today. But the, the great dominant power uh, over the world of uh, the papacy was, occurred in that period of time. And, uh, and also the great incredible corruption that existed in there. We'll look at a little bit of that. Now, the corruption continued on, the decline, on through the decline period of the papacy. The corruption, though the power was diminishing, the corruption was increasing. And so we'll, we'll, be, we'll be seeing that. You might notice that that period from 590 to 1517 is also referred to in your secular history books as the Dark Ages. And certainly as the Roman church had power over everything, including science, including mathematics, including education, uh, including governments. This was a very dark period in the world's history. Thousand-year period, about about 500 to about 1500 A.D., the, the Dark Ages. Then modern church history begins with the period called the Reformation. Protestant churches being established, coming out of Catholicism. Their desire was to just uh, purify what they believed was the true church. They still believed the Catholic Church was the true church. They just believed that it had been incredibly corrupted and and uh, nearly destroyed by uh, the papacy. And so they uh, denied the papacy and they desired a purifying of the church. So, so you, have that, uh, you have that going on and then we, uh, uh, we'll be developing all the way up to the present, the 21st century as we go through this series in the next many weeks. So our, uh, our master clubbers are here. So let's go ahead and let them come on in and be our special uh, for tonight. I believe there might be some awards given as well. So... Brother Phil, our Master Club leader, will take charge and our young people coming on in.